All right, is that better? Okay. I want to start off with telling you what the title of our message is this morning. It's not Choose Joy, that's a spacer slide. But the title of our message this morning is, It's All in Your Mind. Okay, it's all in your mind. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Very familiar passage of scripture, um, but we're going to make, we're going to have some fun this morning as we study God's word together. Um, can I start off with a question though? Um, when I used to teach in our Bible Institute in South Africa, our students always hated um, the fact that I would start every class with a quiz. Now, in their minds, it was a test, okay? And, and they didn't like tests just simply because tests were were not something that uh, were, were easy. And most people never scored 100 on an exam in their life in South Africa. It's just the way that the system worked over there. Um, but anyway, without getting into that philosophy, they always hated to start off class with a quiz. We're going to start off with a simple one-question quiz this morning. True or false, I believe it's on your note page. It is who we are and where we are from affects how we think. Is that true? Do you agree with that? True or false? Who we are and where we are from affects how we think. I think that's very true. And let me illustrate for you um, why I believe that's true. When I was growing up, my favorite sport was baseball. And as I started off this morning, I had this lovely looking tie around my neck. Okay, some would disagree with that, but anyway, uh, it is, it is a tie with my favorite baseball team on it. Uh, and I played baseball for many years growing up. Uh, as most young people, your goal was to be a professional baseball player if that was your favorite sport. Very few of us ever reach that goal in life. Uh, so it's wise to change your goals as uh, life shows you what becomes more realistic and what's not realistic for you. But anyway, baseball was my favorite sport. So when we moved to South Africa, um, baseball wasn't such a popular sport. In fact, let me tell you how not popular baseball was in South Africa when we first got there. Our town had a baseball team. In fact, we, had, we were called the Bayside Braves. Okay, and we had the professional team of the baseball Braves, the the, the Tableview, ba- the Bayside Braves, um, and they played other teams around the province. The second side was like the minor leagues, and I played on the Bayside Braves side of the minor. So maybe I did re- reach my goal. Okay, but let me tell you something. Our team, the, the minor league side of the baseball Braves, the Bayside Braves, they didn't score very many runs. In fact, we played, I think we played six games the season I played before they scored any runs. Okay, And I scored the first run in like six years. And when I crossed home plate, I thought they were going to have some kind of amazing party. They were patting me on the head, they were tossing me. It was crazy how excited they were over scoring one run. And the fact that I played on their second side, like the next side to move up to the major league, I was crazy. But anyway, we had another missionary friend that came over. He actually coached the profession, the, 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 the big side of the Bayside Braves. Okay. Um, and so that's how not popular baseball was in South Africa. Now, they played this other game. The game is called cricket. Now, some people will tell you that cricket is, um, baseball on uh, like uh, antidepressants, okay? It slows things way down. In fact, to finish a game of cricket, a match of cricket, sorry, it's five days. 
five-day test match, okay? They do have a, 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 they developed a different style of the game called, uh, you know, one-day matches, but it still takes a whole day to play the match, okay? So it's, it's kind of crazy, and I struggled really to understand the game of cricket. I'm watching it, and the guy's up there, he's batting, and he hits the ball, and he doesn't run. I'm trying to figure out what in the world is wrong with this picture. You hit the ball, you're supposed to run, right? Not in cricket. They hit the ball, and you think, uh, he's out. No, he's not out because he didn't run. He just stayed in his crease. We never understood the game of cricket until we finally had a young man who played cricket on his high school team, came over, watched the game with us, and explained it to us. It began to make a little more sense. And we also had this one lady in our church, older lady, uh, Frances was her name, great lady, loved the game of cricket. She shows up at church one Sunday morning and she says, Pastor, I've got something for you that will help you understand cricket better. So she hands this piece of paper to me, and on top of the paper it says, Cricket as explained to a foreigner. Listen, pay attention, see if it helps you understand the game. You have two sides, one out in the field and one in. Each man that's in the side that's in goes out, and when he's out, he comes in, and the next man goes in until he's out. When they are all out, the side that's out comes in, and the side that's been out goes out. The side that's been in goes out and tries to get those coming in out. Sometimes you get men still in and not out. When a man goes out to go in, the men who are out try to get him out. When he is out, he goes in, and the next man in goes out and goes in. There are two men called umpires who stay out all the time, And they decide when the men who are in are out. When both sides have been in and all the men have been out, and both sides have been out twice after all the men have been in, including those who are not out, that is the end of the game. You got it? You understand it? No? Uh, Now, bless Frances's heart. She's in heaven. Maybe she's looking down, laughing at us all, trying to understand her beloved game of cricket. But I got to tell you, that explanation of cricket really did not help. Now, you got to believe me, the struggle was real because we had people that loved the game. We wanted to identify with them. We wanted to figure out what it was that made South Africans love this game so much. Let me show you why I struggled so much. Go ahead, Ryan, put that first slide up for me, if you will. There are definitely some differences between baseball and cricket. That's a pitch in baseball, right? We all understand that. Now, if you want to see what a pitch is in cricket, this is a pitch in cricket. There it is. This is called Newland's cricket pitch, okay? The whole field is what they call the pitch, and most in particular, this little strip down the middle here is the, the, the wicket, the batting pitch, okay? We'll get into that in a little more detail. But isn't it a beautiful place? I mean, we had the opportunity to go uh, watch cricket in Newlands after we got to understand the game a little bit. It was, it was great. I mean, the atmosphere was, was wonderful. The scenery, you can't beat it. One of the most beautiful places to watch a sporting event in baseball. But that's a cricket pitch, In baseball, when commentators break down a pitch, they might talk about the grip, 
The spin rate, the speed, the break of the ball, like a curveball, a good curveball has a 12 to 6 break. Um, but there's, there's all kinds of things that, like now, if you watch the, if you watch baseball, I don't know, cause I usually watch Yes Network. Um, but they'll put up on the screen what the, every pitch that the bat, the pitcher has thrown for, for that batter. Curveball, sinker, fastball, four seam, two seam, splitter, whatever. Okay? And then they'll talk about those pitches. Well, when, I, when they break down a pitch in cricket, it's a little bit different. Give a listen. That's 350 runs, by the way. Let me make you hear the firmness of the pitch. Have you ever seen anybody, when they're telling you about the field, get down on their knee and bang on the grass? Now, you see, this is the pitch, okay? And the harder the pitch is, the better it is, because when the, when the person throws the ball to the batter, he has to bounce it. It bounces, and, and you try to, there's wickets back there, there's a crease, and all technical kinds of things that you have to figure out and understand to Watch and know what's going on in a game of cricket. Okay, so that's the pitch. In baseball, the person throws a ball to the batter, and the person who does that is called a what? A pitcher, okay? In cricket, he's called a bowler, Dave. That's what he's called, okay? Um, Here's what the pitcher looks like. We would call this guy the goat in, in American baseball, okay? You know who he is, Mariano Rivera, greatest closer of all time. There'll be a lo- it'll be a long time before anybody matches his ability to close a baseball game. Just ask the Yankees because they're kind of having a hard time with that right now. Okay, but in cricket, now notice the difference between a pitcher. You see, you see Mo. He's got his arm bent. Uh, he's you know he's he looks comfortable throwing the ball, right? Well, here's the picture of a bowler. Notice how in both cases, neither bowler has his arm bent. I got to tell you, that was the hardest thing for me in cricket is to not bend your arm when you're bowling the ball. Because I've always learned, hey, this is how you do it. You, you, you set up, you, your arm is bent, and you throw the ball. And it's always bent until you release it. In cricket, it's not that way. You have to keep your arms straight. You bend your body in all kinds of weird positions, okay? But you, you're not allowed to bend your elbow when you throw the cricket ball. And speaking of balls, I brought a couple of things with me this morning. Mark, are you ready? Cricket ball, baseball. Can you give us a little bit of the difference of the two? They're just different. Okay? Why don't you toss those over to Carl, the coach, and let's see if he's got any different analysis of the ball. Amanda doesn't trust your throw mark because she's protecting Ezra. 
Yeah, so, I mean, there's definitely a difference between the balls in baseball. Now, let me show you something else I brought with me. Well, actually, Carl brought this because I don't have a really nice bat, okay? But this is a baseball bat, right? Um, Ben, can you come up and demonstrate how you hold a baseball bat for us, please? Don't look at me. I'm not throwing the ball to you. <laughs> All right, so that's not a bad stance, right? Okay, and when he swings, go ahead. Don't hit anything over there, but like you're going to swing the bat when the ball comes in at you. You step, you got your weight on your back foot, you kind of twist your back foot, your hips generate all the power. You want to try the, ba- the cricket? No, you probably don't know how to use it, right? No. All right, so with a cricket bat, your stance is totally different. Your stance, well, let me show you something else first. This is what the pitcher is kind of trying to throw the ball over in baseball, right? It's your home plate. So there's home plate. That thing's heavy, by the way. But here is what the bowler is aiming for in cricket. Anybody know what this is called? You use the idea sometimes in way, when you talk. It's called a wicket. Okay? Um, so, and these are called the bales that go on the wicket. So you put the, the bales on the wicket. And in a five-day match, at the end of every day, the umpire comes by and he knocks the bales off the wicket. That means no more play. Okay? Play is over for the day. Um, but it's set up. So we can play the game, and they have this problem, especially when it's windy in Cape Town. You see, the batter's job in cricket is to protect the wicket. So he's going to stand here like this. Wait on the front foot as much as on the back foot. And his job is to stop that ball from hitting the wicket. So a lot of times, he's going to hit the ball, and he's just going to block it. It's going to go right in front of him. He's going to stop it and try to keep it from hitting the wicket. Now, he has to be careful because if he does this, he's out. And then the other guy goes in, and he goes into the, yeah. yeah. So anyway, you got to protect the wicket. Now, if he's feeling like, yeah, I really like this ball that's being bowled to me, he can get as far up the wicket as he wants before he makes contact to the ball. But if he gets too far up the wicket and he misses the ball, the wicket keeper is going to catch the ball and he's going to stump him. He's going to knock the bales off the wicket. And if he's not in his crease, he's out. If you caught the Facebook advertisement or post about church this morning, I had on there, Hazet! You couldn't tell it was like that, but it was, that's what it was. Hazet! And every time a bowler balls, bowls the ball and, and a guy block, tries to block it and it hits him in the pads, the, the pitcher and the whole team is going to go, Hazet! That's an appeal. And a batter can't be given out unless the fielding team appeals for the out. 
So whether he's beyond his crease and he gets stumped or he blocks the ball with his wickets called LBW, leg before wickets, you can't do that. You see the trouble I had trying to understand the game of cricket? But eventually, I got to understand it. And I got to love the game. I played the game, not certainly not on the second team, uh, you know, like I did for baseball. But, but anyway, I got to understand the game, and it was really enjoyable to play. We had church outings. We called them, uh, we would go to action cricket, and we would play. That's where the umpire would say, no, you can't sling the ball like that, mister, because I would always bend my elbow. Everybody got a chance to bowl, except for me, I got a chance to pitch. I mean, I was supposed to bowl. But anyway, and you say, Pastor, what's all this got to do with what you're talking about this morning? Well, where I am from has an impact on what I think and what I do. Last week, we talked about our citizenship is in where? Heaven. Where are we from? What's our home? Heaven. This world is not our home. So just like I was from America and am from America and had the hardest time understanding cricket and playing cricket by the rules that you're supposed to play cricket, as Christians, we struggle in this world in which we live. God has placed us here for a purpose. Yes, we want to understand. Yes, we want to be effective as we reach out into our world to communicate the gospel to others. But it's not always easy, is it? In fact, a lot of times it's very difficult. But it becomes less difficult when we remember where we're from and who we belong to. Our citizenship is in heaven. And I think Paul is trying to help us understand that where we are from makes a difference in the world in which we live. I I think he wants the Philippians to see that our mindset or our way of thinking should be heavenly because that's where our citizenship is. Our mindset should be heavenly. Our thinking process should be governed by heavenly things because that's where our citizenship is. Again, Paul uses the word finally here in Philippians chapter four. And again, I want to remind you that doesn't mean that he's ending what he's talking about because he's still got some more things to communicate to the Philippian believers. But he does say finally, and if you would, would you please stand with me and we'll read together verses eight and nine uh, from the screen. Short verses, you might be wondering, Pastor, how long are you going to be? Well, well, we'll work our way through the text and we'll, we'll finish when we're finished. But read together with me, if you would. Verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is any praiseworthy Meditate on these things, the things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you so much for who you are. You are the creator of the universe. You are the one who planned our salvation in eternity past, sent your Son to be the the Redeemer, the one who would reconcile us to yourself. Father, we are blessed 
to be part of your family, to be part of uh, who you have called to represent you in this world in which we live. Father, we ask now that you will bless our time as we look into your word. Uh, We've had a little bit of fun this morning as we've started out thinking about cricket and baseball and how where we're from impacts what we think and what we do. Uh, But help us to realize that's true in the spiritual world as well. We are citizens of heaven. You have sent us here to this earth to be ambassadors, to represent you. Help us to do that well and help us to learn from our text this morning how to do that better. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. So Paul says, finally, brethren, not because he's almost done, but because he's coming to the end of a section where his thoughts have been pointing the readers in a specific direction. He's been saying, hey, think about this, consider this, I want you to understand this. And what is that direction that he's been thinking about? Well, Paul has been pointing the Philippian believers into this direction. Think think about it with me as we read a couple of other verses that lead up to chapter 4. Verse Chapter 3, verse 8 says, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. What is Paul encouraging the Philippian believers to do? To gain Christ, to become more like Christ, to have more Christ-like attributes, part of your lifestyle that others will see. He wants them to gain Christ. Verse 10 goes on to say, that I may know him, and he's talking about Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Again, we have the idea here of Christ-likeness, being conformed to our Savior, Jesus Christ, that I may know him, and not just know him, but I might act on the knowledge that I have gained in getting to know him better. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 3 says, But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. My goal is to become more and more like my Savior, Jesus Christ. Verses 20 and 21 says, We also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, hang on to your seats here because this is going to blow you away, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Woo! That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're longing for. For this flesh, this old body, for the old nature to be gone, for me to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, to be more like my Savior. And we know when that happens, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You see, Paul's desire for the Philippians and indeed his desire for you and I as we read the same text is Christ-likeness. So Paul's about what he's about to say here is his final admonition in the section about becoming more like Jesus Christ. And as I said, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 especially, very well known, very popular verse in scripture, but there's so much in it. There's so much that Paul packs into this passage of scripture. And in verse 8, we first of all, we see that Christ likeness starts in the mind. It starts in the mind. It's in your head, as we said in the, in the title of our message this morning. This is not the only place in the New Testament where we are told that living the right kind of life begins with the way we think. A couple of other passages of Scripture that teaches that. 
we understand that we have to have a change of mind. And the change of mind promotes Christ-likeness. The change of mind promotes Christ-likeness. Um, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, we see that it requires mimicking. It requires mimicking. You know, I have to do what Paul did to become like Christ. Why? Because Paul was striving to become like Christ. Who are we mimicking in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, though? Listen as I read it to you. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind. Whose mind am I supposed to have? I'm supposed to have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We want to strive to have that mindset of Jesus Christ. We also see that there must be a metamorphosis, if you will. There must be a metamorphosis. What is a metamorphosis? Well, a metamorphosis is a change. It's a change from the inside out. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds in the things of the flesh. That's the unbelievers. That's those who don't know Jesus as their Savior. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. But, there's that lovely word, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And what Spirit are we talking about? We're talking about the Holy Spirit. They set their minds on the things of the Holy Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Spiritually minded people understand what it is to have new life in Christ and that that new life in Christ brings about peace with the Heavenly Father. We also see that we have to mold our minds in the New Testament. We have to mold our minds. Another very popular verse written from the pen of the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit is found in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How do I mold my mind? Well, my, my mind must be transformed. It must be changed. And how does my mind get changed? It gets changed by knowing the truth, by knowing the facts, by knowing what God says in his word. You're not conformed to this world. We don't squeeze into the world's mold. We don't let the world push us and form us into what the world wants us to be, but we let scriptures form us into what God wants us to be. We are transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think on these things, Paul says in in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. We also understand that this change of mind that promotes Christ-likeness is the result of spiritual maturity. The more I grow in my walk with Jesus Christ, the more mature I become. Paul says this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, but the natural man. This is perhaps one of the saddest verses in the Bible. The natural man, the person who does not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because he is spiritually discerned. In other words, he is spiritually, not to use this in a bad sense, but he is spiritually retarded. He can't process the information. 
He goes on to say, but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But, get this, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. We who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we have the mind of Christ, and therefore we can discern things spiritually. At the end of verse 8, Paul says, meditate on these things. Now, unfortunately, this biblical word is misunderstood. Can I ask you a question this morning? What comes to mind when you hear that word meditate? Eastern religion. And what is, what is kind of common with Eastern religion? Clear your mind. Okay, it's a very mystical kind of thing, this Eastern religion. Now, when you say, when you hear the word meditate, that's usually what comes to mind. And you know what? It's become very popular in our world today. That, right along with yoga, okay? Um, And there are things that I believe Satan uses to kind of get us thinking and becoming comfortable with things that we ought not to be thinking about and comfortable with. Okay, this idea of meditating in the mystical religions means that you need to empty your mind, as Joseph said. And I always warn people, an empty mind is not a good thing. You know why? Because Satan is going to fill it with stuff. So what do you and I, what do you and I need to do? We need to make sure that our mind is full of the right things the spiritual things that will guide us in, into becoming more like Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, think on these things, meditate on these things. So rather than an empty mind, rather than emptying your mind with a mantra, that's what they would call it in Eastern mysticism. When you meditate, you have this mantra that you repeat over and over and over again, and usually it's a man-centered thing that you repeat. Um, Paul says, I want you to meditate on the things of God. And by the way, um, the, the mantra usually originates in the mindset or in the thinking around a Hindu God. Okay, So when they're telling you to think about something and empty your mind, they're really not emptying your mind. They're really telling you to think about this Hindu God as you repeat this mantra over and over and over and over again. Okay? Um, and what this meditation, this Eastern meditation does is it results supposedly in, in an altered state of consciousness. You have to be so careful. As Christians, that's not what we're called to do. As Christians, we're called to meditate on the word of God, on scriptural things. In fact, Paul says, these are the things. In fact, you know these things he's talking about? These are all things that are like, that, that were represented perfectly in Jesus Christ. And if we can manifest those things in our lives to the Holy Spirit who lives within us, oh man, we're going to become more and more like Jesus every step of the way. The biblical word meditate is more than just thinking about something. It means to consider. It means to deliberate upon it. It means to grasp it or to draw a logical conclusion. It means to make a decision about the text that you have been reading Colin Brown says this, the concept implies an activity of the reason which starting with ascertainable facts draws a conclusion. Where are the facts found? In the pages of scripture. We draw our conclusions based on what scripture says. Colin Brown goes on to say, Paul uses the word in relating the foundation of faith to the righteousness of God. 
What are you and I thinking on over and over and over again? The righteousness of God. Who he is. What a great God he is. What an amazing God is. He, he has no sin. There's no, never been a thought of sin that's ever crossed his mind in all of eternity. And there never will be. Why? Because he is righteous. He is holy. He is distinctly set apart from all that is sinful. This relationship that you and I have with God through Jesus Christ is based on the facts of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No other religion can tell you that, that their founder hung on a cross, died, was buried, and rose again. Our Savior is alive. Our Savior is coming back for us someday. That's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion that you'll ever think about. Verse 8 contains two parts here that we've been kind of introducing to us. First, Paul lists six things that can be identified as what I'm going to call Christian graces. And secondly, Paul gives us a summary statement and tells us we are to think or to meditate on these things. Let's look at the six Christian graces that should characterize a child of God. What are these Christian graces that should be alive and well in us as the children of God. Paul says, first of all, and I will tell you right off the bat, we're not alliterating the terms here in Scripture. You will find some alliteration, but it's not going to be in the terms of Scripture, okay? Paul says, whatever things are true. So what does this word true mean? Well, the word true is, of course, the opposite of that, which is dishonest. Uh, And the best way to describe it is honest conduct. Whatever things are true, whatever is Honest conduct. That's one thing that Paul says you should be meditating on. Now, let's just take a quick survey. And this survey will show us what the basis of truth is. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. Paul's explaining that the man of God should be used of God to bring people to repentance, which is acknowledging the truth of God. That's what repentance is. You acknowledge the truth of who God is. Based on that truth, people turn from their sinful way of life and start living a life based on what God has revealed to them in the pages of Scripture. This is what Paul says in verses 24 and 26 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, or for our South Africans, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 26. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. This is the truth that is found in God. I love it. They will come to their senses. So in other words, those who refuse to acknowledge who God is and understand what God is trying to accomplish in this life and in our, in our life and in this world, they've lost their senses. Paul says, Let me, let's pray that these people will come to their sentence, senses through repentance, through knowing the truth and understanding the truth and applying the truth to their life. That's the truth about our great God. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, we see there is truth in Jesus Christ. Paul says, but you have not so learned Christ 
If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. In fact, Jesus said it himself, right? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So there's truth in the Father, and there's truth in Jesus Christ, and you and I as believers in Christ and believers in, in God's plan of reconciliation and redemption should understand that we need to let the truth be that which determines the path which you and I walk. In John chapter 16, verse 13, it reminds us that the Holy Spirit who lives within us is what God uses to help us understand and guide us into the truth. Now, he doesn't communicate to us in a mystical, mysterious way. That's Eastern mysticism. He communicates to us through the pages of Scripture. He says here in John sixteen thirteen. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, and he hears it from the Father and from the Son, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. So the Holy Spirit, it is the agent that reveals truth to us and the more we read the scriptures the more he has to teach us and to instruct us in the things of truth and then the other source for truth is also seen in john john chapter 17 verse 17 in the highly priestly prayer of jesus he says this father and jesus is praying you know who he's praying for here he's praying for believers he's praying for us and jesus says this to his father Sanctify them by your truth, for your word is truth. Wow. Jesus says the way you and I become more and more sanctified is through the pages of Scripture. We must let the word of God guide us and direct us. I know friends and people that go to other churches and sometimes they never open this book. They never say, okay, take your Bible and turn to a particular passage and exegete the passage. They don't tell you what the passage means. They tell you all kinds of other things, a feel-good message that doesn't use God's word, and then you go away thinking, hey, that was pretty good, and yet by the time you hit the end of the driveway, you're like, how do I apply that to my everyday life? And the feelings are gone, and the good stuff, because it was man-centered, it's gone. But the Word of God, the Scripture tells us the Word of God does what? It abides forever. Why? Because it's living and powerful. It's the Word of God. God has preserved it. God makes it as relevant today as it has ever been. The Word of God is the way by which you and I are sanctified. We become more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We must pay attention to the word of God even more than to the words of man. Whatever things are true, Paul goes on to say uh, next, whatever things are noble, this word describes that which is of honorable character. Honorable character, okay? Uh, something that is worthy of our respect. Can I tell you that character still matters in the world today? Or at least it should. It should matter to us as Christians, and the character we should be looking for, first of all, in ourselves, and then in others, is a character that honors our great God, that represents our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we're not perfect, and none of us are ever going to be perfect until we get to glory, but it should be our desire to represent the characteristics of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, to those that God brings across our path every single day. 
something that's worthy of honor and respect. Whatever things are just, Paul goes on to say. I like the New American Standard translation here. It translates this word right. Whatever things are right, that whatever things measure up to God's holy standard, God's holy standard, that's what is right. Okay? That's what is just. We cry for justice in our world today, right? How are we going to get justice? By using the standard prescribed in the pages of Scripture. It's the only way you're ever going to have justice. And we could, we could apply that in every scenario that we come across. Whether it's murder, whether it's, uh, you know, because what does the Bible say about murder? Murder says man was made in God's image. We should not murder. We should not take another person's life in murder. Equality. We are all created in the image of God. Every one of us, doesn't matter what your skin color is, if we apply the principles of Scripture, we erase all of those problems. We get rid of those problems that are such ills in our society today when we value human life in the way that God wants us to value it. Why? Because man was created in the image of God. You can talk about abortion. Every baby conceived, every child conceived is in the image of God. When you kill a baby in the womb, you are disrespecting, dishonoring the image of our great God. We could go on and on. Whatever things are just, as a child of God, I must be thinking about these things. He goes on and he says, whatever things are pure, whatever things are pure, things that are undefiled. And this idea of pure has especially the idea of morality excuse me, included into it. We should concentrate on things that are wholesome. If you want to leave off the H and spell it that, or the W and spell it that way, you can for the alliteration, but whatever. Wholesome. Whatever things are pure. When I think about things, I need to be guarding my mind and I need to, need to make sure that I'm thinking in purity. My lifestyle needs to be one of purity that, ref, that reflects the purity of our great God. Whatever things are lovely, this idea of lovely, we use that word a lot in South Africa, that's lovely, okay? Um, but there's so much to that word, it means that which is acceptable and pleasing, in fact, you know what you can say about the word lovely? It's a word that gives hope for the future. Whatever things are lovely. What is your future based on? What are you hoping for in the future? To become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, to become just like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Whatever things are good report. We would use this word admirable or something that is highly regarded when we think of something that is of a good report. Kids, you're getting ready to go back to school, right? Where's all the excitement? Caleb's back there, whoopee. Yeah, you're going back to school, and probably it's going to be more like, I don't know if it's going to be more like normal or not. But anyway, you're going to go back to school. And you know what? No matter where you go to school, at the end of 12 or 13 weeks, what are you going to get? You're going to get a report card. And what do you want that report card to say? 100%. You want good, good marks on that report card. You want it to reflect that you're learning. You want it to be a good report. You want to have 90s and 100s and all S's saying that it's satisfactory, it's good, it's a good report. 
You did well. You and I should be striving for that which is highly regarded from God's point of view. If someone tells you that they admire something about you, it's usually a good quality that they admire. I like MacArthur's thoughts on this. He says, that which is highly regarded or thought well of, it refers to what is generally considered reputable in the world, such as kindness, courtesy, and respect for others. You and I should be representing and modeling those traits in our life. It often refers to things that are positive and constructive as opposed to things that are negative and destructive. Don't usually get commented or credited or um, commended for being destructive. I remember when I was in college, sitting in speech class, and... (laughs) A young lady got up and gave a speech. And the speech teacher just ripped her apart. Absolutely had nothing good to say about her speech. And several of the students were saying, but this and but that. And finally he says to me, he says, and, and, and Tim, what do you think? And I just started listing all the positive things that I saw in the speech. Because we want to be positive And by the way, that speech teacher didn't last very long. You see, you can't always be critical. Now, if it's if it's definitely wrong, then yes, you need to address the issue. I'm not saying skirt. I'm saying, you know, pretend that it doesn't exist, but deal with it in love. That's the way God wants us to deal with the differences that we have, instead of being critical and 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 cutting people down. We need to do it in love, and we need to do it in a way that honors the Lord. We need to do things in a commendable way, that which is highly regarded. Well, Paul makes a summary statement here. And and he wants us to understand the challenge here as he issues this summary statement. It makes the reader choose the direction they're going to go. You and I have to make a choice. Paul says, I want you to understand if there's anything He's changing the style, and it's significant because it was a device that the writer used when he wanted the reader to exercise a choice. Paul's now, he's given the Philippian believers what they need to know, and now he's saying, now I want you to choose what you're going to do. Make a decision. Choose. Paul wanted his readers to be discerning, so he wrote in such a style that would force the readers to do just that. How was he wanting them to discern. He says, if there's any virtue, this idea of virtue, the word means moral excellence. In other words, Paul's saying, if something is morally excellent, then it is something that the child of God should focus his attention on. Morally excellent. We live in a world where morals have kind of been thrown by the wayside, haven't they? People don't look at morals anymore. Is it, is it, and I'm not going to get into examples, but you know what I mean when I talk about morals, good morals. The way you live your life, are you you sexually pure? Are you keeping yourself that way? Are you doing things that would hinder your testimony in that regard? Marriage. That's a God-ordained institution. If a man and a wife are to be together, In sexual ways, God wants you to be married. That's the way he ordained it. That's the way he set it up. We want to be morally excellent. 
You should have your focus, atten- your attention focused on that. If there's any virtue, he goes on to say, if there's anything praiseworthy, this idea of praiseworthy is highly esteemed. Is it highly esteemed? Is it approved and hereby worthy of praise? And by the way, who's doing the approving? God, his word. That's what we use as the standard for approving our conduct. Homer Kent makes this insightful comment regarding Paul's list of graces here. He says, Paul knows that when we continually center our minds on such thoughts as these, we shall live like Christians. Wow. Can the converse be said? If we don't center our mind on those things, we're probably not living like Christians. So we want to make sure these Christian graces are something that are put forth, demonstrated in our life. Well, let's move on to verse 9. Christ-likeness is manifested by our actions. Manifested by the things that we do. Paul says in verse 9, to these things you have heard and seen in me these things do he says copy me use me as an example these things that you have learned this idea of learned is not a reference to gaining knowledge it's more closely linked to that of being a disciple of someone learning here implies accepting the teacher and rejecting the old way of life becoming the new life following in the teacher's footsteps. When you became a disciple, remember Jesus' disciples, they left everything and followed him. He spent day and night with them many times. Now, they did go back to their families from time to time, but they, they spent days on end with Jesus, and he was pouring his life into them, accepting the teacher, rejecting the old way of life. Paul said, follow my example. But since he was following Paul's example, it was safe for him to say that. He didn't say that in his old style of living when he was persecuting the church. But once he got saved and had a relationship with God through Christ, he said, follow my example. Paul, in essence, was instructing the Philippians to live in Christ. And living in Christ, that living in Christ is marked by commitment to him in everything that we do. Those things that you have received, to accept the idea of receiving something means that you accept it, you become associated with it. You become associated with it. How, what is one of the ways that happens in the Christian life? Well, you become a believer, you come to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, and then really the first way that you associate your Christianity with Christ is you get baptized. That's a command that God has said that we're supposed to do as Christians. We're supposed to be baptized. And you know what? Baptism in, in, the, in the New Testament was very public. It was very much out in the open. It wasn't in a church building in a tank. Believe me, I like the heated tank. It's, it's, it's got a lot of benefits. Um, but we always encourage people when they get baptized to invite family, to invite friends, to invite coworkers, to make it as public as possible. You see, in the New Testament, when a person got baptized, they were often baptized in a lake or in a river. And guess what was by the river? A road. And guess who traveled on the road? People wanted to get from one place to another. They saw you getting baptized. You were associating, and you only associated it with one thing, a walk with God. 
getting right with God, putting God first in your life. Christians in the New Testament were associating with Jesus Christ. They were saying, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Count me in. I'm following the man that was crucified. Because he's God, he's, he's God in the flesh, and I want to become like him. Paul wants us to fully identify with the truth of God's word. We receive it, we associate ourselves with it. Paul says, that which you've received from me, that which you heard from me. Paul's not simply saying uh, the things that go in through your ears. That's not what he's talking about here when he talks about, you heard this from me. Hearing here leads to accomplishment. Hearing leads to doing. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you hear the word of God and don't do anything with it, you're still unsaved. But if you hear the word of God and you confess and you repent and you ask Christ to be your savior, then you become a child of God. Hearing requires doing. It leads to an accomplishment, if you will. Paul does not want the things that we are learning to be in one ear and out the other. He wants us to put them into practice in our everyday life. He wants us to be doing the things that we learn in the pages of scripture. And then he says, the things that you saw in me do. Not just looking at or viewing something, but actually acknowledging or understanding what is meant. Acknowledging it. Understanding what is meant. Several weeks ago, I acknowledged the fact that my Yankees were doing poorly. And at the time, looked like they weren't going to make the playoffs. I said to a friend of mine, I may have to start rooting for the other New York team this year. Well, they're about where the Yankees are now, were then. So anyway, I acknowledged that based on what I could see, things didn't look good. Mark and Carl, do you want to acknowledge that things are looking better for the Yankees now? Uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Anyway, we acknowledge and we understand truth. And we incorporate it into our lives. We, make it, we let it make a difference in us. We don't just see it and say, oh, that's interesting and move on. We see it, we incorporate it, we let it make the change in us that needs to be changed, and then we go out and represent our Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we see that Paul, um, first of all, says, copy me, now he issues a challenge. He says, these things do... Or in other words, do these things. Don't just look at them, but do them. The things you've learned, the things that you accepted from me as being from the Lord, the things that have demonstrated my commitment to the Lord, you need to put them into practice in your own life. Do them. The things that you have received, Paul taught the Philippian believers in his writings and in person, he taught them the things you have received, the things you've become associated with because of the gospel ministry, those things you have identified with us as being the things that Christ would want you to do, do them. These things that you have heard, the things that you have listened to and are now putting into practice in your life, you're incorporating them into your daily living, these things, keep doing them. The things that you saw, the things that Paul says, uh, I've taught you these things. You understand what the, you, know, you understand that they happen for God's purpose and accomplishment in your life. Remember, Paul was in prison, and he's writing about joy and rejoicing. And as he, as people visited Paul, you know what they saw in his life? Joy and rejoicing. 
He wasn't just talking from his mouth. He was incorporating it into his life. Paul was in prison. Why? Accomplishing God's purpose in his life. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, remember when Paul got saved and, and God said, told Ananias to go and minister to Paul? And Ananias was like, hey, wait a minute, God. I know that guy. I know that he probably wants to kill me. Because that's what Paul was doing. He was going to Damascus to bring people back to kill them in Jerusalem. Ananias, really, God, you really want me to go talk? God said to Ananias, yes, I've appointed him to preach the word to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to kings, and to people who are in authority. He was arrested, and by being arrested, he got to represent himself to the powerful people of the day. And who did he represent? He represented not just himself, but he represented Jesus Christ. He gave his testimony so people would understand who he was and what God had done in his life. What a change God brought in his life. Paul says, the same kind of things you should be practicing, you should be doing in your life. Don't just be one that is being discipled, but move on from discipleship from being discipled and disciple others. That's what Paul is calling for here of the Philippian believers. And then we see God promises a covenant of peace. These things, if you do them, he says, the God of peace will be with you. You will know peace. You see, knowing peace will convince you of the joy that you have as a child of God. You will have this peace because you're striving to live your life the way Christ lived his, and that will result in the peace that passes all understanding. You and I can have peace when we are in relationship with the Prince of Peace and growing in that relationship on a regular basis. Well, as this wonderful letter from the Apostle Paul gets closer and closer to a conclusion, Paul communicates these practical truths about Christian living. How do I gain victory in my life? How do I stop sinning and start living as I should? Paul simply prods us to think. It's all in your mind. Paul says, what are are you thinking about? I want you to think on these things. He reminds us that life must center on thinking about godly things, such as that which is true, that which is noble, that which is just, that which is pure, that which is lovely, that which is of good report. If it's virtuous, if it's praiseworthy, Paul says, dwell on these things. Let your mind be overflowed with these things and think about them. So if we think about the areas of life that we struggle with, if we replace our current thought process with this thinking process, that which is just, noble, pure, all of those things, we're going to be victorious in our Christian life. Why? Because these are the things that Christ thought about and we'll be living the way he lived, not the way we live or man lives. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you again this morning thanking you so much.